right, we're doing this. It's the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, uh, we have associate editor Christina Che talking with chef Zoe Kim, who owns two restaurants in Brooklyn, The Good Fork and Insa. Christina and Zoe talk about their relationship with Korean food, the dishes they grew up eating, then became disinterested in, and then reinterested all over again later in life. And Christina wrote and edited a beautiful story on Zoe and her recipes in our March issue, which is on stands now. All right, let's do this. First things first, I mean, you know how much this episode and this cover and this whole story means to me, especially to get to work with you Aww. after your amazing book, Korean Home Cooking, came out in the fall. And I guess uh, to me, what I wanted, like what I wanted out of this story for selfish reasons when I was pitching it months ago was, you know, I had realized that I had spent time cooking at home for years. I'd cooked in restaurants for years. And I realized that this was a whole genre of food that I grew up my whole life not really being interested in eating. Mm-hmm. Definitely not interested in learning how to cook. Right. And then all of a sudden, in the last few years, I've I've really not stopped craving it. Right. And right. really needed to figure out a way to make it at home. Totally. And so that's when I called you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I guess you have had. I, we've talked about this before, but you've had sort of a similar trajectory in your Very. own life. Very. Right. Very. Yes. You know, for selfish reasons, I wrote this cookbook, I guess you could say. And for selfish reasons, I opened the restaurant Insa. And that was in So Insa was opened December 2015. And I have to tell you that you and I, we have sort of the same trajectory, I feel like, in the way that we deal with our the food of our people. Um, there's a certain amount of, you know, pushing it away, you know, dismissing it. But at the same time, being drawn to it, mm-hmm. I have to say, when I was younger, similar in college, you know, I, you know, had the little requisite thing of kimchi in, in the dorm freeze, you know, refrigerator, and I didn't touch it too much. And then, um, did you have roommates? I had roommates, and they were brought to me by my sister or my mother, you know, and I didn't really crave it. Um, but I did utilize it late, late nights, <laughs> but most of the time it was forgotten, and my roommates would complain. So it wasn't something that I craved all the time. You would eat kimchi out of the jar when you were drunk, or? Well, so kind of like putting in grilled cheese, like my own way of being, you know, I guess now it's sort of a thing, right? Can we talk about how good that is and how it much the so world good. needs to know? That's right. American cheese That's right. plus kimchi equals perfection. <laughs> In terms of flavor combination, I'm gonna start putting that in all my in all my grilled cheeses. You should. It's it's really good, delicious. In fact, and I do it now. But I back then I did that every so often. But that's as far as I did. Okay, fine. Because I subsisted on um, instant ramen. Of course, that's another <laughs> thing, another vehicle for which you put like you know a bunch of old kimchi in it, and it sort of makes it taste better cheese yeah but aside from that I think all throughout um, my 20s and and even in my 30s as I was pursuing um, the culinary arts I I wanted to learn everything that was opposite of that right and you specifically I feel like you specifically ended up at restaurants like Blue Hill (laughs) or um, I mean I guess Anissa wasn't necessarily pure Western food. I feel like no. Anita did a lot of things. A lot of that global had a, yep, yeah, influences, exactly. absolutely. But it was, at the end of the day, nothing you were doing was 
Korean. No, no. So, and and that was a that was the appeal for me in going to culinary school is that I was a- able to sort of really get my head wrapped around the old French technique and you know, um, sort of the new American cuisine that was popping up at the time. And and it was right before so the gl- the word global anything entered the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that my upbringing in terms of culinary school and various jobs that I had they they tended toward fine dining, you know, the pristine, the pretty, the tall food, Mm -hmm. you know, and really a a focus on the classics of of French cooking. Right. The phrase ugly, delicious had not that's right. Come close to entering the Not at cultural mind. All. And that's what you did at home, right? You just like cooks, you know, they say the cooks the cook never cooks at home and the plumber's house is always leaking and I think that's <laughs> for the most part very true. All those years of line cook and I cook how many times? I can't even tell you. I would say the same. Yeah. I ate everything. I ate all my meals. At, at the work. restaurant, exactly, and maybe when like I had a, a bodega sandwich afterwards, you know, on your way <laughs> on your way home. Dinner was beer. That's right, beer and French fries. <laughs> um, so, so there was a real focus for me in the beginning, and especially because I think in my career I started rather later than most people. How old were you? I was actually twenty nine, and I was cooking a little oh, bit wow. right before then. So it really was. I was. You know, that, that sort of model minority, you know, Ivy League <laughs> law school. You know, that, that story is so tired, but it, it, that was me. Wait, and did you go to law school? I didn't. I was law school bound. Oh. I had a political science degree from Columbia, and that's where I was supposed to go. And, and so it took me 29 Your years to figure out. I know. <laughs> they said, really? Culinary school? <laughs> But I said, I have a vision, I want to be a caterer, and I want to learn different types of food. You wanted to be a caterer? I wanted to be a caterer because I didn't know anything about restaurants. And, the, and really, I didn't know anything about food, right? I just knew that I loved to eat. And, uh, and I wanted to learn things beyond what was at, you know, if I visited my sisters or my mom, like they would pull out the, all the delicious stuff that we're about to talk about now. But yeah. that's really not what I wanted to learn for some reason. Yeah. Like in your mind, what was the food that you were catering in this vision? Right. So it's like, you know, I don't know, like braised meats, <laughs> like big roasts, uh, you know, Canapes? chicken satays, you know what I mean? Like things that you see on global, that, global yes, chicken satays. That's right. So it was very misguided, but I just knew that I wanted to work with food. And I felt like, okay, culinary school, because I knew I had a lot of uh, friends in restaurants, business, uh, cooks, servers, what have you. And I knew the hours are a killer and pay wasn't great. It still isn't for the most part. So so I was like, knowing the pitfalls, it's like, okay, catering, and then I'll just get to do maybe have a little catering company. I don't know. It was very vaguely formed, but it, it really wasn't until... I finished culinary school, which to me is sort of like a playground, right? Just pay to play with food and, right. and get as much as you can. But really, the real lesson is everybody knows who cooks. It's it's at the restaurant. And, uh, and, and I got bit by the proverbial restaurant bug and sort of the theater of it all. And at Blue Hill? At, and mostly at Blue Hill. Uh, a little bit before that was Savoy, the farm-to-table ta- movement. The, the food that Peter was doing was much less fussy, of course. But so there was something about the, these two sort of movements. And I think at the time, fusion was sort of a, a thing that some people didn't know how to take. Like, is it fusion confusion? Or is it <laughs> is it good? Is it What is it? You know? But I was intrigued by it all. And I guess until my education really started in restaurants like Blue Hill, Anissa, Savoy, 
and I did some work for Cesare Casella at Beppe. So I wanted to learn the European styles. Right. And then years later, you know, as you and I discuss, you know, especially after I opened the Good Fork, uh, which is which my is your first first restaurant. first restaurant in Red Hook, and that's turning 13 years this March. Oh wow! And so back then I fought like hell. To, to, for people to recognize me as just a chef and not like, oh, yeah, she, she, she cooks Korean food. You go to the Good Fork for Korean food. And I'm like, no, there is no <laughs> Korean food at the Good Fork. But I did make my own kimchi there. Uh, for this one specific dish called Korean steak and eggs. So that was sort of a riff. So you could take that. And I learned the lessons from, my guests, you know, people like Michael Anthony and Anita Lowe, that you can take classic techniques and just start borrowing from various regions and u- utilizing those ingredients and really giving it the respect that it deserves. Hence, bypassing fusion confusion right <laughs> in I my mind forget, i always forget that michael anthony is is part of our yours and my shared dna totally he hired me yeah at untitled you know oh. many years later right but he is someone he's someone who i think about not like i would never call him the kind of person who cooks fusion confusion food right. or whatever right but if you see what he does at gramercy and what he was doing at Untitled and what Suzanne Cups now does at Untitled, totally. you know, they're they're not afraid to they're not afraid to borrow something great like kimchi. That's right. And, you know, I think Suzanne was doing a kimchi chicken at a certain point. Or no no no, you know what it was? It was a gochujang fried and roasted chicken that was right. just absolutely delicious. So good. And but I think you're right. I think there's always this underlying current of respect for the ingredients, the history where That's it came right. from That's and right. how it how it best complements right. all the other things that you're using, totally. like the vegetables. Totally. And that's and you get to that point by um, respecting the ingredient, yes, but really knowing the ingredient, knowing how it's made, if it is fermented. You know what I mean? The whole simplicity of Korean food is that it's easy to make, quote unquote, because you have such powerhouse ingredients like right. kochujang and denjang. You know that it's funky and like stinky and has that umami punch that no one really back then talked about, right? right. So the side note about Susanna Cups is that she and I sort of graduated from Anissa. Anissa, together, yeah. right. So again, the mama bear here is Anita Lowe, who actually wor- opened a Korean restaurant back in the 90s called Merezi. Oh, I had no idea. Yes, yes. And she actually has a huge, even though she's Chinese-American chef and, you know, studied under... Um, uh, Boulet and David Waltock from Chanterelle. So she was very sort of Frenchy French. Right. So it was, it was I think, her sort of lesson working for a Korean company that opened Merezi and they flew her to Korea to understand the cooking. Mm-hmm. So when I met her and she was a year and a half into her own restaurant, Anissa, she just had the best education, you know, in terms of the culinary sort of upper echelons of her mentors. And she utilized all these global things. And and, uh, and I saw her use gochujang and say tangmyeon or like she wanted to do something. Okay, so he like, let's talk about, I want to make this like a fried oyster dish. And I, I love the texture of naengmyeon, you know, the cold noodle dish that you have. And I'm going to work on this and, you know, we're going to work on it together. And, and that to me was so welcoming, you know. And so I think starting from around that time period, it really was like, hey, maybe there is something really 
special Mm -hmm. about the Korean food that I've sort of always taken for granted. And I think that journey led me, you know, through through the good fork and opening it and saying, you know what, a steak and eggs is a great dish, a sort of tongue in cheek quotation marks. And (laughs) it we could why not serve it for an entree at dinner time. Um, And it really worked. And so that's one of the signature dishes that I haven't been able to take off the menu. And since then, you know, dumplings have gotten some some street cred out there, you know, with Bobby Flay, <laughs> to throw down with Bobby Flay. And so, it, but it is interesting to me as a Korean-American chef and, and how sort of the public views you and, and sort of like your know-how. So, so for a long time, I sort of fought this, like I'm not a Korean chef. Like I barely know how to ferment kimchi just right like my mom. Right. But so, so you know, years in, and I guess, th- you know, fast forward three, four years ago when the notion of INSA came, that really was a soul-searching moment of like, what do I love to eat now? And just like you said, I would drive to Flushing with my two kids, you know, and, and start buying these ingredients and start making these foods that you and I cook together right. that I took that we took for granted for so long and I and I really sort of studied it up and obviously you know I had a good teacher in my mom but you know her time to teach has sort of long passed <laughs> so she would give you instructions like okay mom how do I make this dish and she's like well a little bit of that and just just uh, just keep adding this and then you'll know right <laughs> I mean like, that's not <laughs> gonna work for me my issue was very similar except that my mom my mom wasn't even that great of a cook. <laughs> she, I mean, she would make certain things uh-huh. really well. Yeah. She could not for the life of her explain how she did it. She could, you know, she could make an amazing kimchi jjigae blindfolded. Yeah. But when it came time for me to finally ask her, okay, how did you do it? She would just be like, mm, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, exactly. uh, and I just couldn't, there was no instruction for me to follow. Right. And I think that really you know there are no measurements there no. are no 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 you, there's no method really right. there's no real technique that you're trying to learn it's more just this is how you do it that's right but it, it and, good. and that's why i feel like you know it is the simple things whether it's korean food or american food or italian food whatever it is to me it's always the simplest things that's the hardest because it really comes with minimal instructions, mm-hmm. right? How do you make a great homemade pasta? How do you make the best, you know, egg omelet? And I sort of apply that in learning about Korean food and, and because that's, it's really, you have to use your intuition and that's basically what my mother was trying to say. Yes, we don't really keep a, a traditional recipe book in our family for our kimchi or for whatever else you're making that is a sort of a staple of a Korean refrigerator, but there is the sense of the connection to the food and as cheesy as it might sound, it's real. Right, right down to how you make rice. And my grandmother taught me how to make the rice using the flat of your hands right. You know, right on the right and I and I taught that to my cooks at the good fork and I still teach I don't I don't measure <laughs> water and rice it's just feel so so that was a real sort of a eye-opening moment for me it's like okay cooking by intuition obviously when you have a big restaurant you have to have systems in place and you have to measure things and you have to make sure <laughs> consistency is there but I think but I think this uh, in writing the Korean home cooking book um, sort of unleashed all of this, you know, sort of the childhood psychology, family history, and how I view my culture, my food, my family, all of it. So it was a very cathartic experience to write this. And 
And the response to the book has been overwhelmingly positive from specifically from the Korean and Korean American community mm-hmm. in the very conversation that we're having now and uh, in the detailed conversation that we had in you know many months ago uh, about how that was a great afternoon. Yeah, it really was. And for me, it was about also dealing with you know, the fact that I immigrated to this country, that this is an adopted country. And maybe psychologically, I was saying, okay, no to my own culture, because I knew I had to acclimate and sort of just just groove with what's in front of me. And that's sort of the American culture that I had to embrace. So it makes sense to me why that was like a certain push and pull. But for now, look how beautiful. (laughs) Right. So I wanted to, I definitely wanted to talk about the recipes that appear in this story in the March issue. And these are all recipes that I came to you wanting to learn how to make, not only for selfish reasons, but also because for me in editing the story, the goal was not only, you know, to teach myself how to make these things that I grew up loving and and found very familiar, but also where does that cross over with, you know, where does that cross over with things that I think other people are actually going to be really excited to make right now? And by right now, I mean, you know, it's the middle of winter. This story is about Korean comfort foods. I think that some of my favorite things to eat in the Korean canon are soups and stews. And those are some of the the things I love to eat the most at Insa, at your restaurant. And I think if you look through these recipes, whether it's the kimchi jjigae, which is like the mother stew, I would say that the one thing that every Korean person needs to know how to make <laughs> totally and you know from that to the red wine and soy braised short ribs which are your homage to mm-hmm. korean kaibichim if you look at these recipes they're actually very straightforward and very simple it might just be a technique that most of us aren't super familiar with right and i think that goes back to what you were just saying earlier about working with certain ingredients in the Korean pantry, mm-hmm. such as gochujang, which is a fermented red pepper paste, mm-hmm. tenjang fermented soybean paste, really all kinds of fermented pastes. But sure. you have these ingredients that from the get-go out of the container right. are providing so much flavor. There's right. no there's no need to build it out of raw ingredients. It's right. already there. Right. So all you really have to do is add a handful of other things like a few slices of tofu or that's right. a cup of chopped kimchi or what have you and all right. of a sudden you have something that's so complex and delicious and complete. And so outside of the box, right? Outside of the sort of the the beef and potato stew, right? Right, yes. exactly. Yes. Although I think there are I mean I think you know tak tori tang for yep. example would be a great I feel like that's a great example of something that is familiar sure. in a lot of ways to right. the Western canon. There's right. chick it's it's braised chicken with potatoes. Yeah. And gochujang. <laughs> right. But then you add gochujang and you have yep. something that is just Right. It it is mind blowingly delicious right. in this totally different way. Right. And all you really did was add a spoonful of this That's it. Isn't that right? Isn't that pepper paste? So simple. So you know, in approaching Korean food personally and also in writing the cookbook and, and really figuring out for myself what Korean food means, it's, a, it's, it's about exploring the basic pantry. 
the Korean pantry. And I think you need to do that with any cuisine that is unfamiliar to you. You need to figure out, okay, what are those 10 things? Okay, 10 is a lot, but just maybe even pick five. And I think you could even pick five for the Korean cuisine, right? And you mentioned denjang, gochujang, gochukaru, you know, good soy sauce. And I would put the fifth one as kimchi. Because kimchi is a dish, it's a national treasure dish of Korea, but it's also a condiment, and you could make it yourself, or you could purchase it, and luckily, you know, everybody knows what kimchi is now, so you could get it at your local supermarket. So I always say to people, just buy these five, seven staple ingredients and just play around with it. Don't even try to attempt making Korean food. Just use it in in however way that you want and see, just get a feel of that. Right. I do think there are are some helpful overarching guidelines to consider when using these things. But I do, I, I would love to hear just the rundown of how these ingredients can come into play in Korean cooking. I think you named five of just the the, the most yeah the most utilized. fundamental yes. yes core ingredients in the cuisine definitely. And so you have something like a kochukaru, which yep. is chili the flakes, flakes. Mm-hmm. the red pepper flakes. That's right. And you'll find that in kimchi, probably the most obviously right. You yes, can't but make that's right. You can't make straight up Napa cabbage kimchi, pechu kimchi, without it. And and kochukaru actually sneaks itself because it's pepper flakes. It adds floral essence, it adds heat, it adds um, color. And so you could sneak it in in most everything that you make. And it might not be prominent, mm-hmm. you know, as, say, making kimchi. But kochukaru is a real workhorse. Right. And um, it's not just And it's not just something that you would necessarily sprinkle on the end no, of of a finished dish to garnish the way that you might with a lot of a lot of chili flakes the way that we use That's them right. in American cooking. That's right. But I do think it's interesting that you could add a, a heaping spoonful of those flakes to a broth, That's and that right. becomes the it just soup. wakes it up. It just wakes it up for sure, and it makes it that that fiery red. That's right. That's right. That color is undeniably beautiful. So kochukaru is important, but in talking about this, the five seven key ingredients in the Korean pantry, I would actually start with kimchi. Because kimchi is one of these, it needs to be sort of demystified in how not difficult it is to make. You know, people hear the word fermentation and they sort of get scared by it. Mm-hmm. But it's ra- it's actually, you, you're, you're pre-salting, you know, a vegetable like Napa cabbage, letting it sit for a while. Um, and then you're just tossing it like a salad. And, and there's like, what, four key ingredients, right? Ginger, garlic, kochukaru, and the shrimp paste. The shrimp, right. Yeah, and whatever else aromatics you want to put in, scallions, you know, any kind of Korean parsley, whatever you want. But basically it's those five ingredients, salt being the big player here. Right. And once you make it at home, you have it, and you could eat it with breakfast, lunch, and dinner if you want. <laughs> and then if you forget about it, then it becomes your pantry arsenal, right? Then you can make the, the you know, midnight uh, kimchi fried rice with leftover rice and put an egg on it. That becomes a meal or a snack. And then you could then move on to the stews, right, the kimchi stew. So once you master those things based on your experience of actually producing kimchi, then I think this whole, you know, mystery of Korean food being difficult or like, you know, you can't, it's unapproachable. It's just shattered. You know what I mean? I have recently started to experiment with fermenting my own yeah. 
uh, with a couple of friends of mine and we get together every few months. We get together basically every time we run out yeah. and we're ready for more. Yeah. And it ha- it's been really remarkable to me how easy it really oh, is. So easy. You just need to get a big pickle jar, gallon pickle jar. Oh yeah. We didn't really think about that. Very, <laughs> we didn't think about that the first couple of times we did it and we actually were trying to squash these yeah. <laughs> quarters of these huge Napa cabbages into right. uh, ball jars. Right. And, um, and we did. It and can it, be I done. Mean, yeah. It worked. It was really not that elegant a solution. Right. Right. But we are getting together in a couple of weeks to do our next batch. Uh, for which I am going to special order, I think, the yeah, just half gallon totally. jars. Totally. <laughs> and you just let it sit there, you know? Yeah. Um, and I do think the w- one thing that I learned the day that we spent at Insa cooking through these recipes together is exactly what you said, that kimchi is not only an ingredient and a side dish, it's also it, it's a condiment. It's and an I absolute think, condiment. Yeah. I think the idea of seeing it as a condiment yeah. was really just something I had never thought about before, or I guess it, I guess it's not something I had thought about before uh, consciously, but I realized I had been treating it like that in certain things I was cooking. Yeah, fried rice would be a good example, yep. as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy Baragani, who works in the test kitchen, mm-hmm. developed this just bonkers good uh, udon stir fry, sure. and it's so simple it's like butter scallions kimchi. you add chopped kimchi yeah. and kimchi juice that's it and you basically emulsify yeah. that pan sauce and then you toss hot cooked sure. udon noodles in it sure. and it's that's staff meal oh yeah <laughs> i mean it's crazy how good yeah. it is and oh so good what and what i think is so cool about kimchi too is that when you apply heat to it the second you cook it it becomes something different entirely so I think mellow. people right it's like I think people's first entry into kimchi is the raw stuff mm-hmm. um you know which you can eat on the side with basically any Korean right. food or American food really um but True. I don't think people have a ton of experience necessarily with cooked kimchi right I do think that kimchi stews and things like that are starting to become a lot more popular from right. what I can tell. Right, right. People are getting a taste for it. And uh, American palate in general is, is, is evolving and growing. And, and definitely people have the taste for it. Um, you know, a, a story about introducing Korean food, as I talked about at the Good Fork, you know, the steak and eggs dish, which had kimchi fried rice. Mm-hmm. And the dumplings, obviously, is modeled after mandu. But in, in making, so this recipe the the braised short ribs with red wine and soy it is a hybrid it's not a traditional recipe but all i really do is add red wine to to just give it that little level of acidity and unctuousness and such and, well and that's I not would, all you do you s- no. you also sear the meat sure so which is the french sort of way right and yeah. which i think that i think most people right. when they think about a meat braise that's yeah. like a really normal thing yeah of course you brown the meat then right. you take it out and then you right. add your aromatics and right. you know you do the whole thing but what's weird about this dish like the traditional version of this dish kaibijim is that you actually boil, boil the meat everything, yeah. you boil the raw no 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 no. i'm sorry don't you first soak the you raw meat in cold water yes yeah so we koreans believe in purifying the beef so you any sort of uh cut red meat you need to especially on the bone you have to soak it is that to um, pull out the water. blood the impurities and the blood 
Um, and then you rinse it several times and maybe sometimes the bone shards or whatever. But it's it really, I, I, I just remember, you know, the kitchens of my grandmother and my mother specifically, like there was always red meat soaking. <laughs> <laughs> always somewhere. <laughs> and then after that, you boil it. You boil it. And so this is, again, I you know, the technique-wise in terms of classic Korean traditional cooking is very simple. Soup is boiled. Stocks are boiled. There's no, like, BTB skimming and then, you know, simmering. You know, like, there's in, no, wait, there's no B, what? like bring to boil and, you know, the whole French method. BTB? BTB like, bring to boil. Like, when you do that stock, BTB, you bring to boil and then you reduce it. You skim. That's how you make traditional stocks, wow, right? I've never heard of that acronym before. Yeah. I'm going to start using that now. <laughs> BTB um, then reduced to a that's simmer. Right, that's right. And then, then RTS. <laughs> <laughs> but so so Koreans are in, in making bone broth, right? For for in, for instance, you boil it. It's a hard boil, right? And you're getting all of the marrow and just all the goodness out of the bone. Waste not, want not. Much like Italian cuisine, like you do not waste a darn thing in Korean cooking. So so the techniques themselves are very very simple. All of the the soups and stews that you will find pretty much in Korean home cooking is the method of boiling, really. Mm -hmm. And this is the only dish that I sort of take liberty with. Um, And uh, in that you can boil it or you can take the French method and apply it. But in serving it at the Good Fork, for instance, like 12 years ago as a special, Mm -hmm. I didn't want, and this goes back to the notion of kimchi, I didn't want people to be sort of scared by the fermented or the funk or the kimchi. So I would saute it just like you talked about just now, how that mutes the flavor, kills the funk, and then it becomes caramelized and ultimately sweet in a way. Right. So then if you have something that is Obviously, this this kalbi jim, you know, has a little bit of sweetness to it, and the counterbalance from the tart or the muted kimchi to it worked really well. So then I layered it. I had like a black rice salad, and then the muted saute of kimchi, and then the a hunk of braised short ribs, and then I would reduce the sauce and base it with lots of butter and sort of glaze it in a very sort of French method, mm. and that was received so well. But that is just a hop, skip, and a jump, really, from the traditional kalbichim. You know, I took a little detours and such. But you could take the exact ingredients and just stick it in a pot and boil it, as many Korean mothers and grandmothers do, and you would have something just as delicious. Yeah, and I would say, if I were to show this recipe to my harmony, my grandma... What would she say? (laughs) What do you think she would say? She All would, wrong. She, wrong, would wrong. Be, she would say, <laughs> my guess would be she would say something like, Ige boni, <laughs> right. which is, what is uh, which that? roughly translates to what is this? What the hell is that? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, I think that that goes back to this conversation we've had in the past about tradition mm-hmm. and uh, the dogma sure. behind certain recipes and how they should or should not be cooked according to whom and. Right. You know, I think you have this very unique perspective on the things that you create for your restaurants. And you seem to have reached a place where you're okay making certain decisions on where it's it feels fine to take a detour and where it feels like, okay, best not to mess with this. Right. It's the tried and true way. Right. But it does seem like something that you have to consider a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when you're cooking for when you're cooking uh, the food of a certain 
culture for a different like a different culture's audience sure sure and and i think that was most evident for me not so much in writing this cookbook because this cookbook i had a you know very sort of free hand at tackling like it says in the cover traditional and modern take on these um very amazing korean recipes but at insight i think that was the most uh, difficult thing like what do i put on the menu that will appease the people, the Korean people who come here to, to taste and see and smell the familiar and and those people who have never had an experience with Korean food. Um, and the addition of, I think, Korean barbecue sort of really made that, you know, transition easy for me because I think Korean barbecue, because it's sort of a late um, a Korean food to penetrate, you know, um, some cities and, and people are really taking to it. But I also wanted to introduce a lot of the typical uh, traditional home cooking that you would find, you know, that your mother would make or your aunt would make, you know, and that to me was banchan would do that. Mm -hmm. You know, banchan, you know, traditional making of kimchi and side dishes and, you you know, using seasonality with what's fresh. And and uh, we showcase a little bit of that with using fennel in this um in this story. So so it really was a balance uh, at INSA in deciding what we put on the menu and just and just uh, seeing what, what guests are reacting to. And for the most part, I, I have to tell you, Christina, that, that a lot of the INSA menu has been embraced by a lot of people, even something as strange as uh, sundae, which is blood sausage. Okay, but there is one recipe included in this story that I feel like you have specifically told me people just cannot get down with at INSA. And it might be one of my favorite foods on earth. And it is the dashi steamed egg custard, which is essentially, it's nothing more than whisked eggs, some sliced scallions steamed together with this flavorful broth. Yeah. uh, Until the egg just becomes so custardy and perfectly steamed. And you eat it on the side. Uh, You eat it as a banchan. Right. I don't know if this is total. This is like my recollection, but I feel like I only see this banchan really at Korean barbecue places for the yep. most part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's like the thing that I I have to channel all my discipline to not ask for seconds because I feel like I've been taught that it's bad form <laughs> to ask for a second. Uh-huh. But I love it so much. And if you ask nicely, they'll give you the second. But <laughs> you're right. It's you know. But I feel like you told yeah. you told me about a time when maybe you either had this on the menu. Or I did. You were it was opening, and I and I we made this um, with uh, the anchovy stock. It just like you said, easy peasy. And you peasy. love it too, right? And I love it. This is my childhood thing. You and I bonded over this dish. <laughs> you know, they used to call me Kerangushin, which means egg monster. <laughs> and if this simple dish was not on the table with my rice, then I would throw a tantrum. No amount of washed out kimchi and cold water was going to satisfy me until <laughs> I have this alongside. So, so it was my sort of pride and my. You know, um, looking back and in, in, in nostalgia growing up, like this is one dish I will showcase. So I sent it out with uh, the regular banchan. And was it something that came um, with the banchan? So it was a f- it was for free. F- it was for free. Yeah, and so it's in a small little crock. You mm-hmm. know, maybe just two eggs each, and then it's sort of a you know the ratio is almost one to one. You know, the so liquid, a, yeah, the liquid. Egg. And you could you know at home, I used to my grandmother used to make this. Not even she didn't even put you know anchovy stock in it. She just would put water and just sea salt, mm-hmm. and that's 
it. You know what I mean? Simple as you can get. So of course, you know, and so we, we did use anchovy stock, but um, but some people loved it. You know, people like you, like I know what this is. I know what to do with it. But a lot of the people who were not familiar with Korean food, they didn't know what to do with a custard thing that came with other savory things. Right. So it threw them off. I guess it's fair. I guess that's fair. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. It's it's texturally different it's very just soft it's it's a custard but it's not sweet and i think most americans when they see custard they want it to be sweet and so that's a real sort of mental block for people to get over Mm -hmm. unless you know what it is but those who know what it is love it so half the half the steamed eggs would come come back empty and the other half untouched you know so it was so so we tried we tried for the longest i think for the majority of the first year we opened at INSA, we we did it, and finally we decided that it was too much of a waste. Right. I mean, if you have half your eggs coming back That's untouched right. every night, and it's That's a right. free spread, right? Which I always find truly the most mind blowing part <laughs> of any time I get to go out for Korean food is that you sit down, and the first thing you get is free food. Yeah, yeah, right. But you got to make sure that the guests don't fill up on that stuff because <laughs> there's much more good stuff coming at you. Right. But it is, but that is that notion of Korean cuisine. It's like, you know, the side dishes, as I say, as I said to you and in this book, it's, it's very much about the heart of the Korean cuisine. Um, and that's like your best foot forward in terms of like, I'm going to treat you well. This is what I have prepared for you. This right. is what's seasonal. So, and a lot of, you know, a lot of work goes into it. I guess I would say, and I do want to talk about banchans and how they fit into the general table mm-hmm. scape of how you put together, how you would put together all these dishes and have a meal. Yep. I guess I would say that the egg custard is not something that I would actually make at home on an everyday basis. That mm-hmm. to me seems like um, a little bit more of an of a special occasion thing. If I were to make it at home, than some of the other things that we included in this story, and so. We did three banchans together. Mm-hmm. One was uh, this quick cooked kale, which mm-hmm. was, tr- it, which was truly it was. I saw you make it. It was mm-hmm. nothing more than just quickly wilting down the kale mm-hmm. and then dressing it in the simplest, simplest, uh, yeah. you know, almost like a soy vinaigrette. Yeah, yeah. and that's it. You call that's it a day. It. Mm-hmm. These soy marinated eggs, which are so, uh, so delicious, They're like so you just want to eat. Yeah. You could just eat a couple of those halved over a bowl of rice and totally. spoon some of the soy sauce marinade over it and you'd call it a day um and then the gochujang fennel which i actually think is remarkable for two reasons one fennel is not uh is not a vegetable you would really ever find in it's not native to yeah in korean banchan no because you can't really find it there Mm -mm. and two i don't know that i've ever i don't know that i've ever eaten fennel blanched Mm-hmm. Before we made this together, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I've had a, you know, it's. I feel like in I feel like in modern American cooking, we've gotten so into like the shaved raw fennel mm-hmm. salad thing, mm-hmm. or you know, you roast wedges. Mm-hmm. But really, I had never thought to blanch it, to right. blanch it before. Well, that idea comes from you know the various different types of banchan, right? So the three that you that that's um, in the magazine say the fennel kochujang, that's really a take on a style of muchim, which sort of means like, I don't know, rub together, or I don't even know what the word, muchim, um, you toss. Mixed, mixed toss? Mixed, tossed, right. Um, but but again, a sort of a big, you know, definition. And it's a like lot a of subcategory of banchan. That's right, and I do break it down to, you know, five 
or more. And there's various. Seven, I think, right? There's seven, that's right. See, I forget. Right, tigim, muchim, namul, you know, and this and the soy marinated one is just basically, it's a, it's a form of pickling, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a crazy recipe in there where I tell people to take be- delicious, beautiful, raw blue crabs, cut it up, rinse it, and then you stick it in a very similar soy solution, <laughs> and you ferment that. And that, and that is an actually a dish. So all you could see sort of the pattern of how all these foods sort of fall into these categories, the subcategories right. of banchan. I and have to so, be honest, the, the raw fermented, the raw soy fermented blue crab was not one of the ones that made my personal shortlist for no, this story. No. But I will say I do love eating them. It, it is a very is, strange experience. It is a very strange, bizarre, or sublime experience. You know, just like a lot of strange foods that are out there. Um, you either love it or you just can't jive with it. But uh, but anyway, so this the egg one is a much friendlier version. So so there's a there's a lot to be said about the different types of banchan, but it really is how you treat it. And I think that the fundamentals of Korean technique, say for instance muchim, a lot of that stuff is just blanched. So why not you know take sort of a foreign you know vegetable that's not totally traditional for Korean cooking like fennel and blanch it, and then you you know do the muchim style like you would do a lot of other vegetables and right. same thing with namur a lot of people would blanch you know spinach or watercress or you know other greens and just simply dress it you know why not sort of put it on a on a hot dry pan you know with a little oil and just sort of let it wilt right. so it's a bit of experimentation going on with some of these recipes but but I think it's, you know, you close your eyes and you eat it and you're like, yeah, that's the taste, you know? Right. That's the taste of home. I think one of the common mis- misperceptions about making banchan at home is that it can be, that, that it can only be extremely laborious and time consuming. Mm. And, you know, I think Not the true. the visual, yeah. like the visual idea of just seeing a dozen different things in small bowls on a table yeah. just feels immediately daunting. Mm-hmm. Yep. But what one thing that I've realized over time in in dabbling with making different banchans at home is that they actually share a lot of the same ingredients mm-hmm. and they're all at the end of the for the most part at the end of the day meant to be really fast. You're totally. meant to just really quickly cook something whether that's wilting the kale or blanching the fennel for two minutes or something and then you're just dressing it and then you're serving it and that's really it that's it or i guess yeah that kind of is good segue into my final question which is about how to bring all this stuff together i I just want to i just want to talk about the the not the correct way but there's never a correct there's never the correct way (laughs) but if you were to if you were to look through these recipes and be like okay this looks awesome how do i make it a meal um you know, like, what do you what, what do you do? What do you tell people? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say to go back to our little conversation about banchan, make as many banchans as you can play around with it, um, because that is sort of the center and the focal point of, of a Korean meal. And then, you know, sort of the this whole movement of like, you know, vegetable forward and meat on the side type of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Because in a traditional um, Korean uh, table setting, there are these plethora of 
banchan. And in terms of day-to-day life, I think it's something that is very easy to do, say, if you have a couple of hours, whether it be Saturday or Sunday, some time off that you have, just go shopping and just make a whole bunch of this stuff, which is, like you said, it's the same pantry, it's the same ingredients, and, uh, and, and pack it up into little containers. Mm-hmm. And you have that for the, the rest, you know, the early part of the week. You know, some of this stuff lasts days, like the kimchi. Right. So, so you have it at the ready. And where do you think the uh, the notion of bibimbap comes from? It's leftover banchan and, and steamed rice with some kochujang sauce, and that's breakfast usually for people. But Fried going back egg on top, that's right. So, so the the, the table, the Korea, the essentials of Korean table for me, the heart and soul of it is banchan, your soup and stew, and then maybe some sort of you know meat or fish offering. So in that way, it's a very balanced diet as well, and it's the type of food that is you know nourishing as well as very good for you. You mm-hmm. know, you could design it in a way that it's not, you know, a Korean barbecue and fried chicken aside, <laughs> you know, that's sort of the um, stuff that you have not every day, but that's just as delicious. But the fundamentals of Korean, you know, home cooking um, and what that table looks like, I think it looks very much like the spread that we have here. You know what I mean? With the with the banchan and like the egg, this is all very accessible, and approachable stuff. With rice and a little soup. And that is Korean food, right? There's nothing more that I want to eat right now. (laughs) And I cannot wait to make these short ribs this weekend and tell you all about it the next time we talk. So he, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Christina. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.